อรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะบะคะวะโตอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะบะคะวะโตอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธั
if I just if I just have this reference point of my own views, my own ex, uh, interpretations of Vinaya or Buddhism, that I needed to learn how to humble myself and put myself into a discipline that I wasn't, I couldn't manipulate or control, but it was just a traditional form. And so Lumpa Cha met these standards. He was, when I heard about his, his monastery in Ubon, I immediately became interested. So on meeting him, I was, first I liked the monastery itself. It's a nice forest monastery, very primitive at the time. And at this time, 1967, Lung Po Cha was not very well known, except in the Ubon area. And so my first meeting with him was, he was a very gracious, kind of welcoming person in his temperament. You might describe him as the epitome of metta karuna, loving kindness and compassion, which was very well, you know, I felt very welcome because I was the first foreigner to uh, live with Lung Pao Cha. I don't know if he ever met foreigners before that. So he told me several years later that when he was a boy, he'd go to, he liked Western, uh, wild Western American movies about cowboys. And I seem to fit that description. <laughs> I am from the Wild West. <laughs> but the, uh, that was an, just an aside. But uh, what impressed me was he seemed to understand, even though I couldn't understand him in terms of language, he knew, he didn't know any kind of, any word in English. <clears throat> so I had to go through translators. At the time, 1967, there were two Thai monks who could speak English, and so the first month I would spend with Lung Pao Cha, he'd invite me to his kuti to uh, converse about Dhamma and through these translators. And so I, I found what I was looking for, a, a monastery, a, a, a forest monastery with strict Vinaya training and uh, it also a Tudanga practice monastery of wandering monks. That I, I, I like the idea of being a wandering monk, you know, in my romantic nature, romanticize this, this kind of freedom of wandering in the forests and jungles of Thailand. And, uh, it, you know, as an ideal, it was very appealing. And then also, Lumpa Cha's emphasis was on the, the sutta teachings in the Tripitikas. So the suttas were very much encouraged to study and reflect upon. 
And the first sermon, the Tamajaka Pawatana Sutta, the, the Four Noble Truths teaching, I'd been meditating on for a year and in Nongkai Monastery. So I had, when I met Lumbacha, I had the insight already into letting go, spending that year contemplating the first two noble truths, the, the truth of there's suffering and there's the causes, the second noble truth, the causes of suffering. So just by reflecting on suffering and the causes of suffering, I had the insight in, into letting go. That was the insight received from reflecting on the second noble truth, letting go of the conditions. And the conditions are everything, you know, it's like letting go of everything. So everything is a condition that we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, feel, our bodies are are impermanent and what we see and this, the senses themselves, the eyes, as well as the object of the eyes, are all, it's all about impermanence. And I was very much, uh, I could, you know, easily, I had insight into that. It was quite interesting to spend time contemplating impermanence because that's not part of a Western trained intellect. You know, it's never told to investigate permanence uh, going through many years of education until I stayed with Lung Pao Cha. So of course when you take something everything is impermanent, all conditions are impermanent, that means in the thinking mind, the intellectual mind, that everything is impermanent and it leaves you as an intellectual attachment to the uh, to the perception of impermanence you 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 know and you have faith in the buddhist teaching and you have faith in the teacher lumpur cha then everything is impermanent there's no no doubt no no reason to question that so but what does that do intellectually when you just grasp the perception of impermanence. You know, then you realize who's aware, what is it that's aware of impermanence? Is there, you know, when the, the concept, the perception of anatta, no, no self, no separate self. I'd always end up with, of course, I'm aware, I'm conscious, I'm aware of impermanence when I see things. I'm aware that, you know, the, uh, the eye itself is impermanent and the objects of sight is impermanent and onward through the senses. But who is it or what is it that, that is aware of that? What is, can you be aware of, of awareness? And is there, it must be somebody, some, something. And then, of course, the something, a thing is a, is a condition, isn't it? If everything is impermanent, 
So I created a kind of koan, a conundrum to meditate upon. What is it that's aware of the changing nature of phenomena? And so I'd always end up being never quite certain. What What is it that an experience that is aware, that is impersonal, when the person is a, is always a concept. You know, every thought, every memory I have of my life, every memory comes and goes quite obvious, the impermanence of memory, or every thought, every emotion, physically, the, the body, and the organs of the body are all impermanent. That's not difficult to comprehend or to even have insight from. But then you're left with this this enormous question mark. What is it that is aware? And so Lung Po Chao, when I addressed this, this doubt to him, uh, his, his teaching of the using the Buddha's name put in, a, in a kind of mantric form, Puto, being the aware, awareness itself. So Buddha, the word Buddha means knowing. It's a, it's a, a knowing that is impersonal. So it's not not always the name of a of the sage Gotama the Buddha, but it is a Pali Sanskrit word that can uh, that conveys a sense of awakened awareness in the present moment. So that was quite useful because using the word Puto then uh, then the intellect would assume Bhutto is awareness itself. And it's and and I I can't claim to be a Buddha as a person. You know, it's a, I could not see I'm not crazy enough to imagine myself as a Buddha as a that I become a Buddha as a person just by being aware. But it's a practical method, a convenient means to investigate. So this is what we call the witness position. It's Bhutto, it's Buddha that knows Dhamma. And Dhamma is the way it is. So for a foreigner introduced to Buddhism as an adult, you know, these these are exotic words. <clears throat> Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, to, to many of us who were raised in the Western world, you know, these are, are exotic words we trans, uh, we use in an English context, so we take refuge in the Dhamma, refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. And what do we mean by that? You know, it's part of a traditional ceremony. 
in Theravadan countries, but it must have some meaning beyond just the ceremonial chanting. And Buddha and Dhamma and Sangha, you know, what are they in, in reality, in the here and now? So uh, Lumpur Cha's emphasis was always coming back to the here and now, the Pachubana, what we call Pachubana Dhamma, the reality of now is like this. So when you're uh, training in a Thai, very conservative Thai forest monastery, you know, you're kind of jumping into the deep end because uh, there was, uh, you're, you're experiencing a totally different culture, different language, different diet, a discipline, that sometimes was, you know, you could feel rebellious towards or not see, you know, think it was, you could feel critical of it. We felt, I remember going through a period of feeling suffocated by it, feeling suffocated by the training at Wat Paponga, because I was clinging to the discipline in a way that was oppressing me. It wasn't Lumpur Cha oppressing me or the Thai Sangha at Wat Pong, but how I viewed discipline, precepts, rules of conduct and so forth from an American conditioned mindset. I was also, as a layman, very much like to think of myself as a nonconformist. And uh, it was one of my ideas of being a nonconformist, being rebellious, not just blindly following what you're told to do. So then going into a very traditional disciplinary system, where you're told to do all the time what you're told to do. And, uh, and people were always, monks were always telling me I should walk in a different way, how I should sit, how I should conduct myself. And, and, uh, you know, I was constantly being, uh, reminded of how to surrender, how to conform to this, to the discipline as it, as it existed in Watpapong at that time. And Lungpo Cha, you know, even though he, he didn't, you know, I was probably his first Western person, he seemed to understand me very well, considering he never traveled outside of Thailand. And, uh, from very remote part of Thailand, Ubon is in the northeastern part of Thailand. So he was not particularly sophisticated or well-learned in terms of modern values and systems and governmental systems and so forth, but he was certainly learned in the scriptures and in the practice of the Dhamma. 
So the then the Thai translation for Puto made a lot of sense. So I was learning Thai language, and then they translated translate the Pali word Puto into Thai, which is Puru, is the knowing, the knowing. So that suddenly, like, Pu is a Thai word for a person, individual, knowing the way it is, it's like this. This kind of knowing is not a critical knowing. It's not about good or bad, right and wrong, but it's knowing. It's like this, the way it is. And this was a completely important revelation to me. And suddenly this sense of anatta or non-self began to, uh, you know, I began to have insight into not non-personal awareness that it wasn't Sumedho Bhikkhu that was being aware, or Robert Jackman, or any, or a Praprang, or a foreign monk, or any, you know, individual being, but awareness itself, conscious awareness, because it has no language. When you have the insight into non-attachment, non-attaching to emptiness, where you let go of conditioned phenomena, what's left is a still conscious awareness. But to think into that awareness, then you create a world that's very conditioned. How the world that I uh, my way of interpreting the world was very much conditioned by my generation, by my uh, heritage, cultural heritage, social position, my education. So I was, I had formed a, you know, a world view from all the conditions that I had experienced in my life. And that world view, you know, it was, was an empty condition in itself. If, if I could sum up the, uh, the, you know, in one word, you know, world view, or that's two words. You know, the world, the real world, to an American, is the one you see, the solid, the mountains, the, the, the cities, the, the rivers, the oceans, the world is material world. The world is about people in nations, countries, nationalism, politics. So the world is all about everything that's conditioned. The world that we create in our minds that we're conditioned to believe in, it's all illusion. It's not really the way it is, it's the way we think the way we believe, the way we've been conditioned to believe. <clears throat> so this puto was, uh, I use that, I encourage 
all of you to use that as just a, a convenient method to investigate, you know, to, to look into the way things are, the impermanent nature of phenomena, of everything. So is consciousness a thing? You know, is that a thing that you can observe? And what, what is it that observes consciousness? And so, you know, you can't try to, you know, to this day, scientists, psychologists, uh, psychotherapists are still trying to figure out consciousness because we're all conscious. And everybody that's alive is conscious with a whole different worldview. Maybe it's, we share certain perceptions in common, but a lot of it's unique to the individual. So the worldviews, when we try to establish a worldview that it should be a certain way, some ideal that we have of how the world should be, you know, we end up being frustrated all the time because there's so many different worldviews and other people's worldview we might not agree to because our, my worldview is like this and the, I believe in my worldview is the right view. And so that very way of thinking is all brought around through the intellect, through the brain, through thinking me and mine, my view of the world, what my parents told me, what my religion tells me, what my society tells me is, is the right view. So in the, the third noble truth, the, experience, the, the insight into uh, the end of suffering, which is translated into Pali as Niroda, the end of suffering. So see, thinking of the end of suffering is that once I have insight into the end of suffering, I will never experience suffering anymore. That's the hope, the, the Sumato view, you know, the kind of eternal wish we all have the not to suffer and be permanently happy forever. But insight into, into emptiness, into non-attachment, non-desire, you know, it the insight is instant. And something in you really know, you know, insight is the kind of knowledge that is not intellectual. It's, it's gut knowledge. It's, it's profound knowledge. It's not learned knowledge from what, reading books on Dhamma or, or believing in, in teachings and doctrines from what you get from somebody else or from the scriptures. It's what they call bhajatang, something you have to see for yourself. So the word jnana in Pali word is profound insight. Jnana dasana is what we experience, which is profound knowing 
or insight knowing but then the what do you do with the rest of your life when you have that insight? Is you still live in a world, in a, in a, you know, from my own experience, live in a world of monastics and tradition and Vinaya practices and Tudonga practices. And so what do you do with that? You know, you, you, you still feel certain, you still have what we call vipaka kama arising, memories from the past, old habits that take you over sometimes, that you, you know you you thought you left behind, and so then in in uh, my after my eighth. Year with Lung Ho Cha, he asked me to uh, take on the duties of establishing a branch monastery, which is now called Wat Pa Nana Cha. And uh, because there was an increasing amount of Western Westerners coming to Ubon, wanting to ordain, and uh, it was difficult to teach Westerners because of the language. It took a while to learn the Thai language. So uh, Lung Pao Cha's idea was to establish a branch monastery where, where and since I was the most senior of the Western monks, I would be the teacher. So I vowed several years before that to do whatever Lung Pao Cha asked me to do, whether I wanted to do that or not, I would still do it just because a way of of supporting and expressing my love and appreciation, gratitude to Lung Po Cha. So I took on the the the, the duties of establishing a branch monastery, which I'd never done in my life. Didn't know what I was doing most of the time. So, this was also a learning process because the insight I had, you know, I had to depend on that because the, uh, trying to put myself in a teaching position, or I'd never been in that position. I was a school teacher and, as a layman, but this was different experience in a sangha. So the emphasis that Lumpur Cha made was on being aware, the puto, being aware of the way it is. And so, you know, like all training, as many of you, most of you, or maybe all of you are aware of, it's, it's, uh, it brings up the past, memories of the past, and the relationships within the Sangha itself. And we still, even though we, we all do our best to conform to the discipline, <clears throat> yet in personal relationships, we're all different. We don't always like each other or agree or 
you know, people bring up the thought of being threatened or, or uh, by others and just by their appearance or by their knowledge or by their status. So we become in the Sangha very much aware of each other and monastic Sangha, but the, the, the good thing is that we all conform to the, to the same discipline, to the agreed way of conducting for monks, nuns, lay people. So that's an agreement we, we all shared, that living within that structure. But then we have to live with the, the, the separate views and opinions, habits, racial identities, gender identities, nationalist identities, cultural identities that still can take over our conscious awareness and we can become obsessed with, with our emotional reactions to life. So in first, many people think of monasticism as a lot of suffering. And uh, I remember at Wat Pong in the training years, I was thinking, you know, I was very much aware of the, you know, the weather in Ubon is very humid and hot. So I used to think the weather made me suffer, or the mosquitoes. There are a lot of mosquitoes in Wat Pong. And, uh, then they had daily chores. Every day we had to draw water from the well. It was very primitive, basic, kind of going back to a lifestyle that I'd never had to live with before. So I, you know, I think this is suffering. You know, when you're brought up in a city, in an American city, in a kind of middle-class family, then you... There's so much you just take for granted is normal and what everybody has the right to have, you know. So uh, your standards of what's reasonable, what's right, and what what you're used to is is much more higher than in, uh, uh, in a monastery in Northeast Thailand in, uh, at that time. We had to content ourselves with very basic material conditions. So this, this, but the whole point of this talk is to emphasize the way Lumpur Cha kept pointing to the here and now rather than to the ideal monastery or to just Buddhist doctrine as imposed on you as if you're a real Buddhist, you believe in this. Uh, it wasn't a Buddhism, Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism is not a kind of doctrinal religious teaching. You're not asked to believe in anything, you know. So it, it's not. It's you know. It's or the exact opposite of other religions, which are based on beliefs, on metaphysical beliefs. Like if if the Lumpur Cha said you have to believe in Dhamma. What do, what, what, how do I believe in when, if I'm believing in Dhamma? 
And a lot of Thais in Northeast Thailand used to come to Wat Bapong and they bowed to the Sangha, the monks, first, because that's representing the Buddha, and then Dhamma, they bowed to, the, to a bookcase filled with a tripitaka, or they bowed to the Buddha Rupa, rather, in the temple, and then the bookcase, and then the Sangha, the bhikkhus sitting on the on their, uh, the benches that they sat on. So, Lung Po Chau was always emphasizing that you know that if the foolish belief that Buddha is a is a is an image made out of bronze or wood or marble, whatever it's it's just a material image, and it emphasizes to the lay people, you know, who are willing to believe that Buddha Rupas have special powers and magical abilities, and if you pay respect, you go to places in Thailand, pilgrimage spots where you, there's specially uh, sacred Buddha Rupas. And Lumpur Chao was trying to inform the ordinary Thai people that this is, you know, that this is not, this is like superstition, this is belief, projecting onto a, a bronze image, some kind of magical powers, where Puto isn't magical, and it's a word, but it, you're not grasping the word, you're using the word to remind yourself to awaken and be aware in the present moment is like this. And then he tells them the Tripitaka is not the Dhamma. Like bowing to the bookcase with the Tripitaka in it. You know, Dhamma teachings. But you don't take refuge in a bookcase or a, bun a bunch of books. And the Sangha, the Bhikkhu Sangha in Thailand is, just, is also a, a symbol for those who practice in the right way. So Lumpur Chao's teaching was always this very awakening, making you contemplate what is a Buddha Rupa? What is, the, what is Buddha, Buddha Rupas, Dhamma, Sangha? And of course, the belief system is that it's a, you know, the Buddha is, the, the, it can be a sacred image or the Tripitaka to be respected as the Dhamma and the monastic Sangha to be respected as those who are practicing in the right way. So that's a belief, and they're not bad beliefs, you know, there's nothing wrong with them as beliefs, but they are that. They're imposed structures on the mind of individuals, and we cling to them. We cling to these beliefs in religion. That's why there's so much controversy in religions, within the religions and among religions, because of the beliefs are different. So there's no end to conflict with that. We can't just, 
you know, we can be generous and liberal and try to be fair to all religions is one way of looking at it, or we can regard our our religion as the right one and all the rest are wrong. But to do that, whether it's a grand gesture of accepting all as equal and respecting all religions, seeking the spiritual goal of liberation is, is a generous liberal thought. Or to feel that our way of doing everything here at Amravati is the right way and anyone who does it different is wrong is, is a very narrow-minded view. So it can be grand or narrow, but there's still viewpoints. So where do viewpoints cease? And of course, this is the third noble truth, the end of suffering. And when you have insight, You, you have a confidence in, you have this, the result is samaditi, or perfect or right understanding. Or I, for, for samaditi is the first step of the Eightfold Path, is perfect understanding. You know there's a profound knowing that isn't intellectual, isn't something you've acquired through belief systems or, or from somebody else, or made up for you, you know, a belief in yourself is being enlightened. So then the path is, is developed through samaditi, perfect understanding. Now this Four Noble Truth teaching, I, you know, I developed that over the years, my monastic life, because I, when I first uh, became aware of it, I thought uh, I didn't quite understand it, but I was interested, and uh, the end of suffering especially interested me because my personality, my conditioning, was always very critical and always ending up with some kind of depressing view of life, of myself, of the world. So I thought if I could just realize the end of suffering, I wouldn't suffer anymore. But even that is a self-view, isn't it? I, I won't suffer because I'm still still very much believing that this physical body, this being here, sitting here, talking, is what I am. So in developing the path, you investigate these, the vipaka kama that arises, the, the old habits rises, the anger arises, the fear, jealousy, doubt, worry, And then establishing uh, what Padanatat was, uh, you know, a real uh, challenge because I didn't really want to do it. 
and uh, never done anything like that. And so it was like being put into a position I felt very uncomfortable with. But I could reflect on that. I could observe this sense of, I don't want to do this. I could see it as a mental object rather than something to grasp. Or I don't, I had a lot of doubts about, am I ready with eight years only of experience? And, and I liked a kind of isolated uh, meditation. And then I was put into charge of a sangha about, we started out with about six monks at one on her chart. So then uh, and they were all strong personalities. You know, they weren't willing, you know, they weren't disciples of me. They weren't, they didn't look to me as a, their teacher. And yet I was supposed to be teaching. So you investigate, what is a teacher? You know, you, you don't just try to operate from, a, from the perception of being a teacher. That doesn't work very well. The first year I tried to operate from that position. You know, my role models were Ajahn Chah and Lumpur Jan, the, one of the chief disciples of Ajahn Chah at that time. Because I, I, I didn't know how to be a teacher, so I emulated the teachers that I respected. But that didn't work. It doesn't work to try to act like a teacher or an abbot or a head monk of a monastery. You can become very bossy and, and, uh, blinds you to see yourself always in positions that you you know you you just take on without wisdom without understanding so then i had the insight during that first year of i thought what is it about lumpata that creates this incredible trust and love and appreciation. What is it about him? It never happened with anyone else. Never met another human being who affected me, with, you know, so well. Was it, you know, was it his personality or, or strict Vinaya discipline or, his teachings or whatever, and then I had an, an insight one day that Lumpur Chah was not trying to be anything at all. He wasn't trying to emulate Lumpur Man or other Kuba Ajans of fame at that time. He was completely himself. His being was like this, and he was relaxed. He wasn't holding on to things. So even, you know, when he would admonish me or something like that, I always trusted it was wisdom behind it, not, not a bad mood from Lung Pacha. I never felt he spoke from, 
from any kind of personal enmity or anger or just from being uh, feeling grumpy or a bad mood at the time. His admonishments always had a point, so you never minded them. You never saw them as, you know, as something uh, of rejection, but just trying to point out things that one can't see in oneself usually. So then the second year, Nanachat was much easier because I began to relax and just let things flow. And I found the, the monks that were with me kind of went along with that. They didn't get the resistance that I had the first year. This sense of well-being, of trust, is important in monastic life. So contentment is the goal, but you can't make yourself content just through trying to be content. You have to have the insight that there's nothing worth clinging to. That clinging, you can, there's expedient clinging, so, you know, when you're doing something, you have to, washing the dishes, you have to cling to the dishes to get them clean. So one can operate by handling objects and doing duties, performing one's duties, responsibilities, without clinging, without personal clinging. So there's a kind of flow, an easy flow of being in what we call liberation from suffering. Then coming to England in 1977, that was another challenge, coming to, to a European country and uh, trying to establish uh, this ancient tradition, the Thai forest tradition from Northeast Thailand in London. You know, to me, it's just on the intellectual perception of my mind at the time, I couldn't imagine how that would work, how you would live in a city, enormous international city like London, as a barefoot Dutanga Bhikkhu. You know, the only person I knew in London at the time was George Harp. So then, uh, I addressed this one before we went, before Lumpur and I came to England in 1977. I went, I was full of doubts. And I said, you know, I don't see how this is going to work. Uh, it, keeping the Vinaya as we do in Wat Bapong, if we're living in, in a non-Buddhist country, different climate, different everything, Who's going to support us? You know, how are we going to survive in in a non-Buddhist country? And then Lumpur Cha's beautiful answer was, "Are there good people in in England?" And I said, "Yes, well, of course." And he said, "Then go." So his, it kind of gave me this sense of Lumpur Cha saw 
human beings as basically good. This was quite an insight because the American system, you know, the, my background, cultural background, was people are basically selfish. If you don't take care of yourself, nobody else will. So that was my cultural conditioning from being brought up in, in the United States, which is supposedly an idealistic democratic country. But even my parents believed you had to really look after yourself because if you didn't, nobody else would care. And Rung Po Cha's view of peaceful underlying all their conditioning is basically good, which is true. You know, I found this to be a better way of looking, better way of perceiving life, rather than seeing uh, just the selfish, the selfish, uh, seeing selfishness in everybody and everything. And then you become cynical and depressed. So living in, in England was an experiment. <clears throat> the practice never changed, whether it was in Wat Bapong, Wat Nanachat, going to Dong in Northeast Thailand, or living in London. The practice was always the, the same puto, being aware of the, of, you know, that I could be aware of the fears or confusion or problems that, that others around me had or I had at the time that would arise in different unusual situations. So on this Memorial Day of Lung Po Cha's passing away, I was in Thailand giving a retreat at Wat Ker in a branch monastery right on the border of Laos. Ubon borders onto Laos and Cambodia. And I was giving a 10-day retreat at Wat Kern with Ajahn Jakro, who was an Australian monk, disciple of Ajahn Chah. And right in the middle of this retreat, uh, somebody came from Mubon and said Lung Po Cha had passed away. Or they didn't say that right away. They said Lung Po Cha has been taken from the hospital. He's dying and they, they want to take him, uh, get him back to his monastery before he passes away so he'll die in the monastery. So Ajahn Jakaro and I rushed to the hospital we, we rushed to the hospital in Ubon first, and that's where we were told that Lung Po Cha had left in an ambulance and that he had died in the ambulance on the way to his monastery. So we went to, the, to Wat Ba Pong, and I was one of the first people to see his body lying on a bed in, in, a, in the sala. And of course, this brought back this, somehow the 
the just the word Nongpacha is dead. Just that perception, I felt this sense of grief. Now, many times during the 10 years that Lung Pao Cha was seriously ill, you know, he, he almost died many times. And Ajahn Pasano, who was the head monk of Wat Nana Cha at the time, would always telephone me and say, I think Lung Pao Cha is on his way out. And I'd try, you know, if it wasn't the, the Pansa, I'd try to go to Thailand. But by the time I arrived in Thailand, Nupacha had recovered. So there were many experiences of, of Nupacha terminating his life before it actually terminated. And uh, so I, you know, this time, this was the real thing. And somehow that final statement Lung Pao Cha is dead. I experienced immediate grief. You know, I wasn't exactly weeping or wailing, but it surprised me because the previous 10 years, you were prepared, intellectually prepared. Lung Pao Cha is terminally ill, he might be dying, and you you know, but he is not dead. And that finality of Lung Pao Cha is dead was like this. So this, because of his power and influence, you know, he's become incredibly famous, more famous now that he's passed away than when he was alive. Because his teaching is so direct and so practical, useful for people, all of us, whether you're samanas or lay people, because it's it's a simple puto practice of being a witness, the knowing of the 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 emotional experience that one has at the present time. You have to let go of it to really. Let it be what it is. Where, you know, many psychotherapists are talking about how you're not a, how many people are not aware of their emotions as objects, but they're totally immersed in their feelings of love and hate and fear and so forth. They can't get any perspective on it. Because in psychology, it's still seen as very personal. Emotional experiences are are, you know, very personal problems. Where in Dhamma, emotional habits, we call them habits, are like this. So the grief that I experienced on the finality of Lung Pao Chai's dead was like this. So it wasn't like a, getting caught in a, in a grieving habit pattern, but the, the sense of grief was like this. And, you know, one isn't attached to that. One sees it as merely the way it is. When someone you love passes away, it's like this. And you're not trying to suppress grief, not trying to indulge in it, but knowing is puto, knowing the way it is. Pachubana tama, here and now.
So I offer this as a reflection for today. Amen.